You're listening to a sermon from Red Door Church in Melbourne. For more information, go to reddoorchurch.com.au. So we've seen over and over again, Paul's very explicit about this. The purpose of the gifts of the Spirit is the edification of the church, the building up of the church. And so that's why I'm so excited to talk about these things, because our big purpose here next to making much of Jesus is to see his church built up, to see people grow in Christ-likeness, to, as we like to say, make all of life all about Jesus. So what I want to do, because we've taken a week off, I just want to reread for you those first 10 verses of 1 Corinthians chapter 12, because this sets everything in its context, all right? And then we'll get specifically into uh, verses 7 to 10. But let me, let me read this for us. And if you've got a Bible near you, I encourage you to turn up to 1 Corinthians 12. Paul says, Now concerning spiritual gifts, brothers and sisters, I do not want you to be unaware. You know that when you were pagans, you used to be enticed and led astray by mute idols. Therefore, I want you to know that no one speaking by the Spirit of God says Jesus is accursed, and no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. Now, there are different gifts, but the same Spirit. There are different ministries, but the same Lord. And there are different activities, but the same God produces each gift in each person. A manifestation of the Spirit is given to each person for the common good. Say that again. A manifestation of the Spirit is given to each person for the common good. To one is given a message of wisdom through the Spirit. To another, a message of knowledge by the same Spirit. To another, faith by the same Spirit. To another, gifts of healing by the one Spirit. To another, the performing of miracles. To another, prophecy. To another, distinguishing between spirits. To another, different kinds of tongues. To another, interpretation of tongues. One and the same Spirit is active in all of these distributing to each person as he wills. So we're zooming in this morning on the gifts that Paul mentions there, gift of faith, gift of healing or healings, and the performing of miracles. And I want to start with this, this idea of this gift of faith because I think it can be confusing to us. We think about a gift of faith And we think, well, I have faith. I have faith in Jesus. That's why I'm here this morning. Is that the gift of faith? So it's important for us to understand that this word faith is used in a few different ways in the New Testament. In fact, we saw the three major different ways that it's used in our series in Mark, and we highlighted it at the time. So three different ways that the Bible talks about faith in the New Testament. First of all, the the faith that is converting faith. This is the faith that you exhibit, that you exercise when you are converted, when you come to faith in the Lord Jesus, converting faith. Second of all, there's continuing faith. This is the faith that is required for you to be here today, even though you became a Christian in 1956. It's the faith that's required each day to take up your cross and follow Jesus. It's persevering faith or continuing faith. 
The Bible's clear that, that faith is no fire insurance policy against hell that you can sign off on in 1956 and then forget about until you die. There's converting faith, but then that must be accompanied by continuing faith, persevering faith. If you have the one, you will have the other. Genuine converting faith is always accompanied by continuing persevering faith. So two different types of faith there. And then a third type of faith that Paul refers to here, charismatic faith. That is, charismatic men gift. It's gift faith. So I've given you three C's there, so it's super simple. Converting faith, continuing faith, and charismatic faith. When it comes to this gift of faith, I like what... John Carson says in his book, by the way, some of you have asked me for further reading that you could do around this kind of thing. And if you want to go in the deep end, there are some more basic level books that you could read. But the deep end, you want to read Showing the Spirit by D.A. Carson. He's a Bible scholar and he goes deep, particularly into these three chapters that we're looking at here. What he says about the gift of faith is that it enables a believer to trust God to bring about certain things for which he or she cannot claim some divine promise recorded in Scripture. That's very nuanced, and every word of it is very important. So I'm going to read it again. The gift of faith enables a believer, so someone who's already got the converting faith and the continuing faith, to trust God to bring about certain things for which he or she cannot claim some divine promise recorded in Scripture. So here's, a, here's something that I, that I can believe uh, on the basis of my converting and continuing faith. Right? Something that doesn't require the gift of faith is this. Jesus loves me. I don't need any special gift of faith to know that. In fact, we wrote a song so that everyone would know that. Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. That's how I know that Jesus loves me. The Bible tells me. I have a promise in Scripture that doesn't require any special gift to believe. Is that clear? So as we read through Scripture, one of the the best things we can do is to note down every promise that we read and to take a hold of it and to cherish it. It's one of the things that enables our continuing faith. But then there are times in which God gives us an ability to believe something that we have no reason to believe. We have no promise to attach to it, and yet we have this sense of certainty and assurance that God is at work in this, that God is going to bring about this, that God is going to move in this way. And that's the supernatural or charismatic gift of faith. Now, I don't want to be too narrow in applying this and giving you examples of how this works. It's interesting that D.A. Carson is similarly vague Certain things, he refers to. Trusting God for certain things. I can think of some examples, though. I think of the example of John and Suzanne in moving to Caroline Springs when it was all just paddocks and dirt and 
moving here out of their family home to start somewhere new, to be part of a church that didn't exist, to be trusting that God was both leading them here and that God had something for them to do here. Now, you would have to speak to them about whether they would recognize a gift of faith there, but that's the kind of thing that a gift of faith might lead us to do. It might lead us to do crazy things like selling everything we have and moving to the Philippines. God sometimes starts with short-term mission, and then all of a sudden he's got you in long-term mission, right? And, And what's required to do that, when everyone around you is saying, what are you doing, this is crazy, you've got a comfortable life, why are you giving it up, right? Sometimes what's required to overcome obstacles like that is a supernatural gift of faith. I was talking just this last week at a conference for pastors around here, talking to a guy who is embarking on this building project for his church, his poor, struggling church. And it is uh, like he just talked nonstop for a, for a good 20 minutes about all that's going to happen. These incredible, overwhelming, like I just felt exhausted listening to him about what they're planning to do. And at the end of it, I said, and, and where's the money coming from for this? And he just looked at me and said, God's going to provide it. And here's the thing. Sometimes it's naivety that leads us into that kind of certainty, and sometimes it's a gift of faith, and often we, it's difficult to distinguish one from the other, because the cynic in me wanted to say, well, how about you figure out that first before you get into all the planning? And yet he had this sense of certainty and, and joy, and I know him, he's, a, he's not a kind of dreamer kind of guy, he's very kind of logical, grounded but he has this level of certainty that makes me think, has God given this guy a gift of faith so that he might lead others into something that would otherwise be impossible for us to attempt? We have no promise of scripture in which to ground our certainty and yet God gives us a certainty that we wouldn't otherwise have coming to us via the gift of faith. So he groups these three things together, faith, healing, miracles. And I think he does that because these three things, in my experience at least, tend to work together. There's a dynamic relationship between the three of them. And, and yes, faith, the gift of faith can be exercised apart from healing or miracles. But, but when healing and miracles happen, I think that's normally accompanied by this extraordinary or supernatural gift of faith. And so what I want to do, because we don't have time to go through all of these things individually, is rather to look at how faith and healing work together and whether God might be calling us as a community to invest more heavily in a ministry of faith and healing. So let's zoom back in into the text in verse 7 to 10. He says, a manifestation of the Spirit is given to each person for the common good. To one is given a message of wisdom through the Spirit, to another a message of knowledge by the same Spirit. We looked at that two weeks ago. To another, faith by the same Spirit. To another, gifts of healing by the one Spirit. To another, the performing of miracles. So as I say, I think Paul has put these together because these things often work together. And in my experience, there has been probably, I think, 
I was trying to think back about it and be accurate about it this week, but I, I think twice in my life as a Christian over the last 19 years of being a Christian, I think twice I have prayed for someone and they've been healed. And on both occasions, whereas I would normally be praying for this person and and seeking God's mercy in this, in this person's situation and hoping against hope that they might be healed. But at the same time, I have no promise to hang that healing on. Nowhere in Scripture has said this person will be healed at this point because of your prayers. Whereas that's the normal way of things for me. In these two occasions, I've finished praying for the person and I've had absolute certainty that they were healed. Not that they would be healed, but that they have been healed. I've been around long enough, I knew not to say to them, job done, and I wouldn't want to be so presumptuous. But in both cases, their subsequent healing has been first experienced by me as an absolute certainty that God has heard us and God has healed. That's, I think, what I'm talking about the combination of the gift of faith, which gives us certainty for something for which we don't have a promise, and the healing hand of God ministering through the prayers of his people. I had this with Renee earlier in our marriage when there are complications with her and her being able to get pregnant and carrying a, a baby to term. Prayed and had this washing over It's like saturation of certainty that contrary to everything the doctors had told us and all that the uh, tests had revealed, that she was healed and everything was going to be okay. Had it again after church here with a young lady who was not yet a Christian, praying for her and absolute certainty that God had moved and healed her. And in both cases, the healing The healing was given by God, by a gracious and merciful and powerful God. Now when it comes to this combination of gifts, faith and healing, miracles, I think these gifts are much more temporary, temporarily given than some of the other gifts. By that I mean when it comes to having the gift of tongues. In my experience, that is a gift that can be exercised probably throughout your whole life. Whereas these gifts, I think, are given in much more temporary situations where God sees that in this situation, the the Spirit of God needs to move to bring about this end in accordance with His will. And so He gives the gift and the thing happens, the healing or the miracle or the belief that he's going to do this or that thing, and then the gift is taken away. For example, when I prayed for Renee that time and she was healed, I have no expectation that if I had have run out to someone else on the road, even who had the exact same affliction as her and prayed for them, I have no expectation that that person would be healed. It's not like while the magic's going, I need to spread it around. It doesn't work that way. And in fact... Unfortunately, in our translation, we don't have a a literal translation of what Paul says here, but what he says when it comes to healing, he says that um, to another faith by the same Spirit, to another gifts of healings 
both plural, gifts of healings, which makes me think that what he's saying is that these gifts of healings will be for various different types of healings at various different times. There is no one who has the gift of healing. There is no faith healer that we should follow around and make sure that he he casts his shadow over us so that we might, right? That's not how this works. God gives gifts according to his will to bring about his purposes. Some people might be able to walk in this gift for extended periods of time. Others of us will just have it for that moment because that's what God wanted to do. But it's gifts of healings in verse 9. Some examples of this gift. I want to take you to just a couple of passages and you could go through hundreds in the New Testament. But in Acts chapter 3, he's an example of a what would probably combine the, the gift of miracles and the gift of healings, all right? So it's very miraculous, spontaneous healing. It says Peter and John were going up to the temple for the time of prayer at three in the afternoon. A man who was lame from birth was being carried there. He was placed each day at the temple gate called Beautiful so that he could beg from those entering the temple. When he saw Peter and John about to enter the temple, he asked for money. Peter, along with John, looked straight at him and said, Look at us. So he turned to them, expecting to get something from them. But Peter said, I don't have silver or gold. What I do have, I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, get up and walk. Then taking him by the right hand, he raised him up, and at once his feet and ankles became strong. Healing. Miraculous healing at the hands of Peter and John. And then you go all the way to the end of the book of Acts, right? Right to the last chapter of the book of Acts. And it says that Publius's father was in bed suffering from fever and dysentery. This is in Miletus. No, this is on Malta. Paul went to him and praying and laying his hands on him, he healed him. One healing. After this, the rest of those on the island who had diseases also came and also were healed. Mass healings at the ministry of Paul, exercising the gift of faith and the gift of healing. You have this throughout the narrative of the book of Acts, as we see the early church exercising these gifts that were given to them at Pentecost. And then variously given to them according to God's will to further his mission, spreading the gospel. You also have this in the epistles. So I think you see this working in the book of James. We've preached through this and we practice this. He says, is anyone among you suffering? He should pray. Is anyone cheerful? He should sing praises. Is anyone among you sick? He should call for the elders of the church. And they are to pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. The prayer of faith will save the sick person and the Lord will raise him up. If he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. So there we see the prayer of faith. And it's interesting in the Greek, he uses the the definite article, which is the, he uses in front of the prayer and the faith. So it's the prayer of the faith. Often that sort of double use of that definite article is meant to show us this is important. There's something emphatic here that we need to know. 
It's our version of underlining or putting in bold. And I think what James is talking about here is this gift of faith. Here's what John Piper says about this verse. He says, James 5 does not teach that everyone the elders pray for will be healed. It teaches that if the elders pray the prayer of faith, the sick person will be healed. This is stated so absolutely that it seems to me that a gift of faith is meant here which assures the elders the healing will be done. So you can see the dynamic way that this gift of faith and gift of healing can work together to bring about God's sovereign purpose in healing his people. Now the question in my mind is, and the question that I hope is obvious in your mind, is that if all of this is true and if God is merciful and loving and delights to heal people and we read through the scriptures both in Jesus' ministry and the ministry of the church, people being healed in miraculous ways and if it's true that he still gives gift of, gifts of faith and healing and miracles, then why, why do we not see more people healed today? When we're so desperate to see people healed, when we have loved ones who are suffering, why is it that not everyone we pray for is healed? I've got a few possible reasons why that might be, and I want to share them with you, and then I'm going to invite us to participate in praying for one another. So first of all, One reason why someone who's suffering the illness might open themselves up to God's healing and yet not be healed is is if there is any prevailing sin that's been unrepented of at work. Now, we need to be really super careful about how we talk about this. I'm not saying, everyone look at me so you're really clear about this. I'm not saying that if someone is suffering with illness, it's a result of their sin. I'm not saying that. Now, they might be suffering as a result of their sin, but we as creatures... We as simple believers are never in a position to say you are sick because you are sinning. We don't have that kind of insight. What I am saying is that sometimes a barrier between us and God's work in us is this prevailing and unrepented of sin. And so whenever we are seeking for God's intervention in our life, whenever we're seeking for him to turn up and do great and powerful things in us, we need to be aware of that, that potential barrier. And so it's a good practice for us to be continually repenting of sin, of course. So James says, back in that same passage, James chapter 5, he says, The prayer of faith will save the sick person, and the Lord will raise him up. If he has committed sins, he will be forgiven Therefore, confess sins, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another so that you may be healed. 
the prayer of a righteous person is very powerful in its effect. James says, if you are suffering, by all means have people pray for you to be healed, but also confess your sins to one another. Those two things go together. Another reason why someone might be Uh, might be continuing in sickness is if there is, I think, a lack of desire for healing in that person. In that person and perhaps in their church community. So this seems like a, a weird one. If I'm really sick and suffering, then why would there be any lack of desire in me to be healed? But it's interesting that sometimes in Jesus' ministry, like in John 5 verse 6, he, 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 asks, he asks a man, do you want to be healed? It's interesting, isn't it? Do you want to be healed? He first seeks their agency, their, their consent. He seeks out their will for their own healing. He doesn't just come in and override. And very often in Jesus' ministry of healing, there's first this expression of desire in the person, I believe you can heal me. I trust that you can heal me. We have to consider the principle that, again, James gives us in his Epistle in James 4, I think it's verse 2, he says, You have not because you ask not. The reason you don't have this thing that you want is because actually you haven't asked God for it yet. Or perhaps you haven't prevailed in prayer. Maybe, maybe you said, Yeah, God, please heal me that one time, and then but you haven't had that that continual prevailing desperate prayer that goes back to God and again and again. Maybe you need to express your desperation for healing in fasting prayer. Something the Western church has almost completely forgotten how to do. I will not eat as an expression of my desperation for God to move in this situation. With every pang of hunger... I echo it with a pang of desire and desperation for God to move in this situation. How, how much of a contrast is that to what so many of us is a flippant kind of, God bless me today, amen. So desire, desire to be healed. Another reason, third reason might be that there is a demonic component in this illness that hasn't yet been addressed a demonic component that needs to be addressed and broken before the physical healing can take place now let me say again everyone look at me again I'm not saying that if you're sick it's because you're full of demons or even that Satan is at work in this illness necessarily I am saying that if the illness is ongoing and, and chronic, 
and that our prayers have been ineffective in bringing about healing, it may be that there is a demonic component in that that needs to be addressed first. So my mind goes to Luke 13, where Jesus... Well, let me just read Luke 13. Do we have that there? Yeah. Verse 11 to 16. Luke says, A woman was there who had been disabled by a spirit for over 18 years. She was bent over and could not straighten up at all. When Jesus saw her, he called out to her, Woman, you are free of your disability. Thanks, buddy. Then he laid his hands on her, and instantly she was restored and began to glorify God. Now see what happens next. Verse 14. The leader of the synagogue, indignant because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath, responded by telling the crowd, There are six days when work should be done. Therefore, come on those days and be healed and not on the Sabbath day. But the Lord answered him and said, Hypocrites, doesn't each one of you untie his ox or donkey from the feeding trough on the Sabbath and lead it to water? Satan has bound this woman, a daughter of Abraham, for 18 years. Shouldn't she be untied from this bondage on the Sabbath day? So you see, her physical ailment was a result of this bondage of Satan, and that was what needed to be broken in order for her to experience healing. I remember a story that my mentor, Peter Adam, told me, and it was all the more powerful because he's so conservative and reformed and buttoned down. He told me the story of this kid who came to faith in his ministry who had this dramatic conversion and rapid growth, but then a real plateauing of his spiritual fervor and his spiritual growth. And he would come to Peter and say, I just, I just feel like I'm being held down. I feel like I've been bound up by something. He also walked with a limp and had done since he was born. And Peter, this very mild-mannered, and you know, he's, pre- he's preached here before a few times, very... Uh, just met with him to read the Bible with him and said, well, we should pray for you. And he started praying for him. And this guy who was actually uh, some kind of South Pacific Islander, which means massive, right? This guy just started going mental, running around the room and throwing things around. And Peter, who's about this big, just thought, what have I done? And for hours... This guy was a raving lunatic and Peter was fearing for his safety. He says from this point on he would always pray with someone else in the room. But it went on and on and on and Peter just diligently prayed for him as this was happening. He didn't get up and rant and rave and slam him with the Bible or hit him with a magic coat. He just prayed diligently for him and after a period of time the guy eventually settled down. And the next day, his limp was gone that he carried from birth. And subsequently, he found out from his parents that generations before, they had been involved in all kinds of dodgy witchcraft and ancestor worship and stuff in caves and sacrifices. So the, the physical ailment of the limping couldn't be dealt with until the spiritual binding of Satan had been dealt with by prayer. So again, not in every case, but maybe 
Last of all, and, and probably the thing that applies in most cases, I, th- I think, is just the fact of the mysterious and sovereign will of God over our health and ill health, over our suffering and our liberation. The mysterious and sovereign will of God who knows best and does best. That yes, God is merciful and he delights to minister healing in the bodies of the creatures that he loves. And yes, sometimes God withholds that healing for a greater purpose. And you see this, right? If you want to just take it all the way to the top, in the ministry of Paul, there is no doubt that if you read the Scriptures, Paul has an incredible gift of healing or gifts of healings, to be more accurate. He exercises incredible gifts of healings. We read about the island of Malta. Heals that one guy, and then everyone else who's got the sniffles comes and they're healed as well. I don't know if it's sniffles. It might have been paralytics. I don't, but everyone's healed because Paul prayed for him. And yet, he's got his friend Epaphroditus, who in Philippians 2 is ill. And Paul doesn't show up and wave his wand. Well, there's an example of, of Timothy, that, that son in the faith that he loves so much. Paul's advice to Timothy was, take a little wine for your stomach. Why not, in Jesus' name, stomach be healed? Well, probably both were happening. And probably both should be happening all the time in our community as well. Take a little wine for your stomach. Take a little Panadol for your migraine. And in Jesus' name, be healed. You got Trophimus, who Paul talks about. Paul says in 2 Timothy 4 that he left Trophimus behind because Paul was on a mission and Trophimus is sick. And then you have the example, maybe the strongest one, of Paul's own experience in 2 Chronicles 12, where he, it says he has this thorn in the flesh. And we don't know if that's sickness might just be someone who's opposing him, might just be, I don't, who, who knows. But the, the fact that he says flesh kind of makes me think that it's a physical ailment. This thorn in the flesh, he pleads with God three times to take it away and God says, no. No, Paul. Why? Paul says it's because God wants to prevent him from becoming conceited. He's, he is living the super spiritual life. He is, he's being taken up into heaven, he says. He's ministering all these spiritual gifts. He's, he's the greatest missionary that's ever lived. And, and, and Paul says, God's ministry to me to keep me from becoming proud, conceited, arrogant was to leave the thorn in my flesh. God says, my grace is sufficient for you My power is made perfect in weakness. So sometimes illness may prevail 
not because of unrepented of sin or because of a lack of desire or because of demonic oppression, but simply because of God's sovereign will. He knows best. He does best. The Lord gives. The Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. So, Here's where I think all of this leaves us, taking everything together. Not taking one aspect of what we've learned and running away with it, but taking all of these things together and the sweep of Scripture. I think it leaves us here. It leaves us gathered together as God's people. We should have a kind of unity of mind and of conviction that because God is merciful and because he loves to heal us of our afflictions and because no one person has the gift of healing, because there is no one person in this congregation who we platform as the healer among us, and because we don't know when God will show up and break in and do miraculous and marvellous things among us, then we ought to be gathered here eagerly desiring gifts of faith and healing and miracles. And we should be gathering together and praying with great expectation, knowing that God can do more than we could ever ask or imagine. And then as we eagerly minister in the gifts of the Spirit, praying for healing and restoration, we can rest. We can rest in the sovereign arms of God who knows best and does best. And I want to invite us into that space now, even now as we are gathered here. Yes, I want to encourage you to do this in your small groups. Yes, we will continue to invite you to come down to be prayed for every week as we sing in response to hearing God's word. But what I want us to do now is to pray for one another. There are people in this congregation gathered who are suffering. And there are people, I know for a fact, who aren't here this morning because they're suffering. And it's preventing them from gathering with God's people and singing his praises. And so that ought to give us a motivation to see God move in power. And what I want you to do now, and and just for a couple of minutes, is to gather with maybe the people that you came with, maybe with the two or three people that are around you, gather into small groups. And, and, and here's where it requires a bit of courage on your behalf. If you are suffering in any way, be it physically, mentally, emotionally, if you are suffering in any way, then please have the courage to put yourself before your brothers and sisters and say, in response to Jesus' question, do you want to be healed? To say Yes. Yes, I want to be healed. And then allow 
your brothers and sisters who are here for your good, for your edification, to pray for you and to ask that God would minister healing to you.